We're back. We're back. This is a distraction. I'm Drew. That's Roth. How you doing, Roth? I'm good, man. How are things? I'm good. My wife, uh, she got boosted yesterday, and she was she was the first one in the family to draw the short straw. She's laid up with side effects, the dreaded side effects. So. Is that just what's happening? She's just getting really good, uh, like, 5G reception on her phone right now, and it's really hard to stop browsing? Is that what's happening? Like, she felt really awful. Like, she went... Into the bathroom, she usually fainted. Like, she felt faint. She did oh not faint, thank God. We've had enough fainting in this house. And then she went back to bed, and she's just lying in bed, and I brought her, like, dry cereal and Advil while the dog sort of stayed by and barked at me because, like, like he, like, guards her. He's like, oh, that's my wife. She's my, that's my woman now, not you. So I walk in, he's like, rrr, 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 rrr. I feel terrible for her. And I hope that uh, she feels better soon. I've had zero side effects from any of this stuff. And I feel like, you know, my numbers do whenever I get boosted. But I, it sounds miserable. And then at the same time, like, the idea of going to Thanksgiving and just not being worried about anything is pretty sick to me. Like, I'm into that. I'm actually, I'm weirdly jealous of the, uh, of the people who have had side effects. Because they're all like, oh, dude, it felt like... My fingernails and toenails were being pulled out one at a time for 48 <laughs> straight hours. And then I was fine. <laughs> it was like, like I, want, I wished for death, and it was awful. And now I feel great, actually. Perfect. Yeah, that experience of like the switch flipping, it doesn't mean that you want to be sick, but feeling better is definitely one of your, your good experiences that you get as a person. I just feel the same level of bad every day. That's my secret. Hey, well, I got something that'll make you feel good. It's What's our that? guest, Seth Wickersham of ESPN. Hi, Seth. Oh, wow. Man, I, I hope that I can pull off that trick. I mean, it's, it's a lot of pressure you know, to make you guys feel good in the sense that, you know, to make it akin to having side effects from the booster and then all of a sudden, like a switch, it all coming off. Well, I I would say that already, you know, I started this. I had some real misgivings about doing the podcast today. Didn't really feel like it. But now look at me. I'm right here. Energy level's high. I'm excited to talk to you. I would say that the effects are already obvious on the podcast. Seth, I I will tell you that that doing the podcast does have its own set of side effects. You will feel woozy (laughs) and groggy. And you might affect the Robert Kraft voice a little bit once the show's over. Sadly, there is no cure for Robert Kraft voice. Uh, Seth is the author of It's Better to Be Feared, a fully comprehensive uh, history of of the Patriots dynasty and of the relationship between Robert Kraft, Bill Belichick, and Tom Brady. So let's talk about the book. I can't believe we have to talk about the Patriots, but Seth, you are here. We're going to do that as a courtesy, huh? Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that. We can talk about other things if you want. I, there are there are things are things I want to ask you, but let's talk about the book at the beginning because you you go all the way through uh, two decades of the Patriots from when I believe it goes from when Brady is drafted uh, all the way through to when he leaves for Tampa Bay. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, how did you how'd you write it? How'd you uh, compile it? How long did it take you? And how many different uh, like quiet lunches did you have to have with Robert Kraft to compile the book? (laughs) You know, it's interesting because I, you know, I I kind of started writing it in a weird way, not literally writing it, but compiling it. You know, my, the first time I met Tom Brady and it wasn't my idea to write a Patriots book. The publisher came to me and, you know, it, it was something I never thought about. But then when I did start thinking about it, I was like, you know, one of my very first assignments for ESPN magazine was in November of 2001, where they sent me to Foxborough to do this story on this guy who was filling in well for Drew Bledsoe and would probably then go to the bench. And 
you know, I remember we met at the old Foxborough stadium and he had a sweatsuit on, he had a gray sweatsuit and a backpack that was full of beer because he had lost a Michigan, Michigan state bet. And, um, you know, we were about the same age at the time we graduated from college the same year. And I, you know, I, I, I never threw away the notebooks and, and, you know, a lot of the recordings from those meetings. And so, you know, I had a lot of them with Brady, you know, at his house and at his Super Bowl parties and even at parties with him. And then, you know, I'd had a lot of conversations with Belichick over the years and I had all the recordings and stuff from that. And, you know, as you guys know, I'd done, you know, some investigative pieces on the Patriots, things that they didn't like that much either with my colleague Don Van Natta for one of them. And I just sort of, and fellow Vikings fan, Don Van Natta. That's right. Yes. And um, I just, I felt like I was sitting on like a lot of material. And then I felt like that just covering the league for 20 years, I could, I had enough contacts inside and outside of the building that I could, you, you know, try to learn more. And so I guess that's kind of how it all came together. Um. Did you know? Do you notice a pronounced difference between the Tom Brady you met in 2001 and Tom Brady now? Well, he, yeah. I assume he was not anywhere near as guarded or anything like that. I mean, he's so different. I mean, at the time, you know, the first time I met him, I almost felt like we were kind of the same species, and that didn't last very long. But you know, the very first time I met him, you know, we were kind of young men who were kind of getting our breaks at the same time, and, um, you know. The, the next time I spent any significant amount of time with him, 2002, 2003, I mean, that was long gone. I mean, his life had completely changed. Mine was pretty right. much the same. <laughs> but um, he's absolutely different. I mean, at the time, the first time I met him, obviously, he was, you know, kind of this plucky upstart. The next time, you know, I spent time with him, he, um, you know, was a celebrity. And then after that, especially after he married Giselle, but just as his fame kind of exploded at this point, he's not even really a celebrity. He's kind of this like global presence in the same way that like Tom Cruise is. I mean, he's just a different, he's completely different. And, um, you know, he looks different. I mean, there's so many things about him that have, that have changed that, you know, in one sense, it's like, if we're all looking back on who we were at 24 years old and now we're, you know, in our mid forties, we should be different. But for him, he's, he's very different. Yeah, well, there's like this unreality that sort of overtakes extremely, or even, I guess, like you said, like people that are beyond fame. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not a guy that advertises Wheaties or whatever. <laughs> you know, like, it's not, like, even as a football player, he's sort of transcended that, that it's now just sort of, like, in the way that people can become brands yeah. sort of by accident. He's just this agglomeration of virtues and uh, ticks and, like, weird factoids. Yeah in the shape of a guy that plays football. And it's not by accident. I mean, you know, when he married his wife, I mean, obviously he was a celebrity within America, but she was a global celebrity. And now his like fame, I don't know if he's like more famous than her, but his ambition has definitely eclipsed hers. And I think that that's pretty interesting and kind of revealing. I remember there was one time I went to his, his house. He was living in the back bay at the time. And, um, uh, the elevator, it was an apartment building and the elevator opened directly into his house, into his living room. There was no like, Oh, that's a baller move. Yes. Yeah, was, and I had never, and I was, I was very caught off guard by it. Um, I just kind of entered and I'm like in his living room. And what was really odd about it was that nobody else was there. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, where is everyone? I'm supposed to meet Tom at this particular time. No one's in here. Are his kids going to come like running around the corner and wonder like who this guy is in their house? And I remember I, I hear this voice, you know, come from a different floor. And he's like, hey, Seth, just make yourself at home. I'll, I'll be right. I'll be right up. 
And um, so I, I go and I, I'm looking at some of his pictures and he has this picture of his wife on the beach and she's in a bikini. And I remember thinking how odd it was that, you know, here it was this like, obviously personal picture, a picture of his wife from a vacation. And yet, you know, millions of people essentially have that picture of his wife in their house. <laughs> you know? Why, yes, they do. Um, <laughs> Under but, their mattress. But, yes. You know, going back to your thing, I mean, I think that his celebrity really changed, you know, once he really started to, you know, come to terms with the fragility of, of the career that he took and his ambition to do it for as long as possible. I mean, he, you know, he started to, to really push his TV 12 business um, after they beat the Falcons in the Super Bowl. Remember, he came out with that book and, you, you know, I wrote, yeah. he, you know, Tom Juno and I wrote about it. It's just, you know, essentially he was trying to reverse the aging process. And, you know, the, the book had a lot of very, um, you know, bold claims to put it that, to put it, you know, mildly, you know, one of them was that you just couldn't blame football if you got injured. You know, if it, you had to, yeah. he was giving you, he yeah. was giving you all the tools to stay healthy. And so if you got injured, if you got a concussion, it was your fault. You couldn't blame the game. And I thought that was one of the most interesting things and kind of revealing things about, you know, his mentality and kind of what we talk about celebrity and ambition and fame. It's like, that's kind of where he's reached, where, you know, he kind of believed that, you know, he could take this incredibly violent sport and bend it to his will. And not only that, but that he could pass it on. <laughs> you know, that was a really interesting, interesting, interesting moment for him. Did you ever challenge him on that? <laughs> Would you ever have a chance to challenge him on it? We talked to him for, for that cover story we did. Um, and I'm trying to remember if we, you know, we did ask him about that specifically. I, I just remember that Tom and I, we kind of began with a joke. Remember when his book came out, everybody was kind of panning it. Um, cause he said all these like, you know, things about like drinking, you know, water would, would prevent sunburns. Remember? Um, yeah. yeah. I remember all and, that and, shit. And you know, his updated edition actually took a lot of that stuff out. Like a lot of those claims, you know, are not in the updated, you know, edition of his book, but, um, Oh, did he, did he strike? Yeah, them? he did. The memory hold rules. Like now there's just like a little, like a nondescript <laughs> recipe for a strawberry based smoothie. Exactly. He's like, don't worry about no, it. But, that was always there. Yeah, we, I remember we began with a question to see, you know, everyone was kind of making fun of him about this book. And I remember we opened with a question to see if he could, he could laugh at himself. And, um, you know, we, we asked about the kind of twin tenants in the TB12 method of both, um, you know, drinking so much water. I think he drinks like 164 ounces of water a day and, you know, nine hours or whatever it was of uninterrupted sleep. Right? <laughs> you know, those two things are at odds. Um, you know, how do you get that much sleep without having to go to the bathroom all night? And so we asked him basically that to just to just to see if he could kind of laugh at it. You know, Peyton Manning would have like hit it out of the park. Right. And, you know, Tom's answer was so earnest and it, it just showed that he was someone who, he was well aware that people were making fun of him and, you know, couldn't really, you know, partake in that or, or even make fun of the people who were making fun of him. He ended up giving kind of a really boring and expansive answer about how you want to, you know, stagger your water intake so that you have plenty of time to adjust to it so that you're not, you know, waking up all night to go to the bathroom because nobody wants that. It's like the opposite of a yes and in an improv exercise. Exactly. It's just him being like, well, bladder is trainable like any other muscle, yeah. Seth. Great question. <laughs> yes. Is it? Does it feel tragic to you 
that he has had to that he has become this person almost by necessity but also by design do you feel that there's been humanity lost is there something about him now that feels less than when you met him in, uh, 20 years ago no but i think that there's always a side of him that's just kind of ruthless that he just won't show us and you know i still think that it remains out there kind of waiting to be seen just kind of like you know, what his vanities, you know, we're well aware of, of his vanities, but what are his insecurities beyond, you know, just not being able to play football in that massive hole that that would leave, you know, in his life. I think that, um, you know, I think it was there, you know, back when I first met him in, in, in 2001, and I think it remains there. But I, I, I do feel like that there's just a side of him that he just is too, you know, aware of that he just won't let us see. And I, I think that like that would kind of go a long way to, you know, kind of explaining him in a way that, you know, I did my best to report around it, you know, based on, you know, interactions that I'd had with him over the years and interactions that he had with people and the way that he would, you know, talk about Belichick at times, you know, when he was frustrated with him, but I still just think that there's, um, you know, this side of him that I don't think it's tragic that who he's become, but I think it's tragic that he, he hasn't been willing to kind of reveal that piece of him yet. Has he revealed a bit more since he moved to Tampa? Has he become a bit more human? Or am I just perceiving that because he doesn't play for a team I fucking hate anymore? I also think he tweaked his brand, Drew. I think that a lot of it is just what you see in, in, in public. Feel, I don't yeah, know that... it feels orchestrated to me, but I, I, I can't fucking tell. I think, what do you I think, think a little bit, but it still feels... Like it feels more orchestrated to me. It's hard to know whether he's revealed more of himself or his social media team has more fun, you know? <laughs> I think that's a lot yeah. of it, dude. I yeah. think that, and then, you know, like being in a subway commercial, like doing a gag about eating bread and stuff like that, it's nothing special, but it's more than he was doing 10 years ago. It is. Sure. It's also just like a weird commercial because it, it, like maybe 10 years ago, he was doing the commercial with his offensive lineman, you know, for the credit card. But like now he's doing a commercial for a product he actively doesn't eat. Yeah, <laughs> right. Talking about that, like, it's, it's like a very one of the odd three things that everyone knows about him yes. is that he would never eat a subway. And he tries to kind sandwich. of like have some irony in there, but as we know about Tom Brady, he's like the least ironic, you know, celebrity ever, and he continues to be. <laughs> I think that's that always where the comedy is, where it's him trying to be yes. ironic and he's just utterly failing. You, you know, there was a moment that I thought that he you know, again, giving that glimpse of himself, you know, where he did the shop LeBron James's show over the summer. And remember, he utters that line where he's like talking about his free agency tour. And obviously it wasn't LeBron's free agency tour. There, you know, there were few teams that were interested in him. And a lot of the teams that were interested in him ended up, you know, kind of saying thanks, but no thanks. And, you know, the 49ers, um, you know, the Titans, you know, the, the Raiders and you know, he has that moment where he's talking about that process and how one of those teams decided they were going to stick with their incumbent. He goes, oh, yeah, you're going to stick with that MFR? I see how it is. And I thought that was like, that's how he, that's him. But then, of course, right. everyone wondered who the MFR was, and he walked it back, <laughs> you know, as best he could and saying. You know, it was Derek Carr, wasn't it? Oh, I think it was Garoppolo, but I don't know. I think it was Garoppolo. Oh, all right. All yeah. Right. Either way, the idea of Tom Brady having to like issue an official statement being like, at no time have I considered Jimmy Garoppolo yes. a motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. That's just not, that's not me. That's not how I think of him. Actually, I, I want to ask you about that, that free agency course, because I have, I have some questions about that. Because you wrote that 
The Niners were his first choice, mm-hmm. I assume, because so he could show Garoppolo who's boss. And they rebuffed him because they studied his 2019 tape. And like a lot of us, they thought he was done. So do you kind of understand why Kyle turned Tom Brady down? Or is the hindsight too strong now where it's just like, what a fucking moron he was? <laughs> um, you know, I think that, like, there's one of those things where do you ever really look good turning down a future Hall of Famer? You know, and it's not just true for Kyle. That's true for a lot of, you know, coaches. You know, you think about, like, when Peyton Manning, you know, he was in worse shape, obviously, because – Nobody knew if he could continue playing because of his neck, but it's like, right. You know, a hall of famer with a little bit of an edge is pretty unstoppable. And, you know, he, he did want to go to San Francisco and it would have given him a chance to play for his, his favorite team and given his chance for his parents to drive to a game for the first time since, you know, 1994, um, you know, rather than hop on a plane and go either halfway or full way across the country. And, you know, they just were apprehensive. And I think that, you know, when you look at Kyle and, you know, what he was weighing there, I think that he's always just kind of had a relationship with Jimmy Garoppolo as a player that he doesn't quite know what he has. He has doubts, but he also, you know, is convinced that, you know, maybe a lot of the, the statistics and the, the wins and, you know, the, the presence that Garoppolo is on his team is worth, you know, continuing with him for. And clearly, um, you know, he, he ended up, you know, going with, with, with Garoppolo, but I thought it was kind of interesting. It was more reflective, I think, more of Brady than, than the, the Niners in a lot of ways, that entire episode, because it showed that he had that ruthlessness in him. I mean, the 49ers, you know, might have, you know, they were up 10 points in the Super Bowl. They were very close to winning a Super Bowl. And, but he kind of went to them knowing, saying like, you know, I know that there's a difference between me and your starter, and you know there's a difference. And, you know, what do you say? We make this thing work. And at the end of the day, you know, they decided, you know, to stick with Jimmy. And obviously we saw what happened. I mean, they ended up trading a huge amount of money to, to draft the third quarterback in last year's draft. A huge amount of capital, sorry. And they can't wait to – they keep, they, like you see Kyle's like dying for an excuse <laughs> to put Trey Lance in. And can't get it because Jimmy's just adequate enough where he has to yeah. keep That's him. the Jimmy Garoppolo experience. That's the thing that – Tom Brady correctly adduced that the 49ers had in Jimmy Garoppolo, which is like this guy who's just good enough for you to not be placed with anyone. But yeah, you write about the Patriots dynasty. You see all these like kind of characters that are interesting because it spanned for so long that like there's all these characters that kind of come and go that are ancillary characters that had an impact on the dynasty. And, you know, Garoppolo is one of, you know, Eli Manning is one of those guys. And Garoppolo is a weirdly one of those guys for a guy who's like, you know, a, a, a solid B quarterback, but he's ended up like, you know, figuring into a lot of their, you know, the dynamic between Brady Belichick and Kraft and, you know, even beyond that, as we saw, you know, when, when Tom wanted to go to the 49ers, he's just kind of like one of those weird kind of, you know, supporting characters that ends up, you know, factoring into, you know, how things went and a lot of the, the decisions that were made especially given that they had so many backup quarterbacks, like somehow he's the one that matters, like not Michael Bishop or Jacoby Brissett or like whatever, Brian Hoyer, somehow like it has to be, this is the one guy, the handsome. I mean, Bill Belichick once said the difference between Tom Brady running the offense and Jimmy Garoppolo running it was seamless. He used that word seamless. It's an amazing word for a guy who picks it, you know, his language very carefully. Um, I, I thought that was, you know, that was an amazing comment to make. 
Well, was that a Parcells sort of thing where he's saying it for just to needle Tom? I, I think he was deeply invested in Jimmy. You know, I think that he, you know, remember Brady, you know, the, so they beat the Falcons in seven in 2017. And, you know, it's this amazing comeback. And Belichick's getting all these calls for, for Jimmy G because the rest of the league is saying, well, Brady's going to be there forever. Here's a quarterback who, you know, played pretty well when he got, when he had the chance, you know, let's, let's get him. And Belichick would not trade the guy. <laughs> and he not only told, you know, opposing GMs that he told the coaches that we are not trading Jimmy. And then he of course ends up holding on to him until the last possible second until he had to trade him to San Francisco and never even really created a market for him. And then, you know, he spoke about him for two minutes <laughs> at the press conference after they ended up trading him, you know, spoke glowingly about what a great teammate and player he is. After each game, remember Jimmy G went like 5-0 and that year for the 49ers. After each game, he and Belichick were texting. I thought it was just an amazing – like I said, he's like in a, one of these kind of like amazing secondary characters when you look at the Patriots dynasty that comes up because he's obviously not a transcendent player. But within the context of the Patriots dynasty, he was an important one. You also said that Brady heard a pitch from the Chargers before going yeah. to Tampa. But they only confirmed that Tampa was the right spot. But you don't say how come. And I wanted to know how come. I think what it, happened in that pitch. Well, I think it was mostly look, the money was all the same. I, I think that it was because he wanted to play in a different environment. I think that the, the Bucks just kind of, I think there was a little bit more. Um, how do I describe it? I just think that like he wanted, you know, he was going from like Harvard Law School to like Florida State, right? And I think that. You know, here with the Bucks, you have a head coach who makes his like, you know, assistant coaches cocktails after games. Just so different than Belichick. Ooh, I like and I think the other part of it was that it was on the West Coast. It was easy for him to see his oldest son who lives in New York City. Uh, all right. So then I want to ask you one more Brady question. We're, we're going to finally not talk about the Patriots, which is that you said that Brady cried many nights in the wake of Kobe Bryant's death. And I want to ask do you really believe he did that? Well, he said that. And so, you know, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but do you believe it? Yeah, I don't know. It's a, one of those great questions. Um, I, he, he said that, and it's like, I, I don't know if I totally believe it or not. And, he, you know, but I think that he saw Kobe as, you know, kind of among the same, you know, kind of a kindred spirit. You know what I mean? I, I'm not sure how well right. they knew each other, but he think he kind of recognized a lot of Kobe's ruthlessness and drive i remember you know remember bryant you know and bryant's one of those guys that like i've never even been sure that i like the guy <laughs> you know yeah. at all no of course yeah he's a fucker you know he just there was something about him i always thought that like he was always pretending right it, which is different yeah, than he Brady. was doing a jordan he was doing imitation. a jordan imitation until eagle colorado i mean this is way off topic but like then after that after like the world kind of he became this divisive figure then I think he kind of unleashed his inner asshole in a way that he rode until like the day he left, you know, the NBA. And I think that he was kind of unafraid to be himself and just kind of let the world know that, yeah, I'm kind of an asshole. He kind of bragged about it at one point, you know, that, you know, to be great, he had to be this kind of asshole. And I remember I watched his, the documentary he did. Um, when was it? I want to say it was like around 2015 or so. The Spike Lee one. I thought it was called the Mamba Mentality. I can't remember it, but either way. Oh, all right. There's a Spike Lee one that just tracks him during a game. And like, 
no. it's fine, but it kind of it's not going to make you like watching Kobe Bryant anymore. It's just him <laughs> hunting contested mid range players yeah. that like yeah. one after another. Yeah, and so I watched that documentary. And I remember just like you know, again, it's it's a pretty raw glimpse, and you know, Kobe Bryant, to his credit, I guess, was unafraid to just say, "This is who I am. I'm a fucking asshole, and I'm not for everybody." Whereas I think that Brady isn't quite there yet. But I remember I watched that and I asked Brady, I was like, you know, did you watch that documentary? I was wondering if you kind of saw it as like a primer on the requirements of greatness. And Tom was like, well, he's the Mamba. <laughs> great, weird, non-answer. Great copy, Tom. Thanks yeah. so much. But, um, well, also because, uh, you know, Kobe's uh, pivot and self-branding was a result of a rape charge. So, you know, it's like, ugh. Like, you know, you're capitalizing on a crime that, you know, very credibly probably happened. And so you're, you're you know, to base your sort of self-branding with Nike in, in concert with Nike after that, you know, that always left a bad taste in my mouth, even after he died. Yeah, it was, it was always weird. I mean that, you know, again, we're going way off topic here, but, and I remember like when he died, you know, I called the, the prosecutor in Colorado and, and wrote about him. Cause I was like, well, I want to know what he thought, you know, when, how did he learn that Kobe had died? He was on the, the ski lift. And I thought it was really interesting because he kind of spoke for a lot of people who saw it as a, as a human tragedy that, you know, kids were losing their father and that, you know, these other people had died and, you know, nobody celebrates death, but he was also kind of, he didn't have the same emotional um, reaction that, that a lot of people did where, you know, Again, it was just his, you know, he just kind of spoke for a lot of people who saw it, you know, obviously as a tragedy that a human being died, but didn't quite participate in the outpouring of, of empathy that went on. Well, I think so much of that empathy stuff was like, I mean, some of it, it it's sad. I mean, the, the actual family dimension of it is very sad. But I think, again, this is like that unreality that sort of happens when a person becomes a brand that like Kobe became like a representation of a mindset and an approach and a worldview and all this other stuff. And that superseded the actual person that we knew that he was and the actual things that he did. And I think that I, there was always something about that that was like not just stagey and false, but that read as like openly evasive to me, that that was like what he dropped down over the shame of being revealed as, as a fucking creep. I, I thought one of the most interesting moments, you know, about everything that happened with, with the, the, the charges against him were, you know, the, the transcripts of when the police confronted him in the parking lot with, you know, the fact that the woman had come to them and that, you know, something that he had clearly moved on from, you know, the police were again, there talking to him about it. And it was one of the few moments in Kobe Bryant's life that, you know, to that point where he couldn't be scripted, he couldn't, you know, punt. He couldn't, he was scared. And how he reacted in those moments, like reading those transcripts, um, you know, where the police talked to him. Again, it was before he was charged. They were just trying to gather information, but clearly he knew something was wrong and he couldn't, you know, do what he had done his entire life, which was be Kobe Bryant and kind of, um, you, you know, figure out a way through it by virtue of, of his abilities as a celebrity and a basketball player. I thought we're you know, in his life, I thought those those transcripts, reading them was one of the most kind of fascinating moments. I mean, you know, how he threw, you know, he, he threw Shaq under, you know, he roped him into it, you know, right in there and stuff. And, you know, again, it's just how he reacted. I thought was, was one of those interesting moments because you rarely see a celebrity where they're in a circumstance like that. 
Yeah, and it's, you know, I think the prosecutor was right that you can empathize with him, with, you know, his family and all, and, you know, after he, he died, but you don't have to beatify him, and that is what has happened, and I, you know, I, I think I've always had an issue with that. I got two hard questions for you before we get to the stupid stuff and take a break, all right? So, so the first one is, you did a, uh, a deep dive, I believe, with Don into Stan Kroenke and his legal trouble with the NFL, and you wrote, uh, you wrote that uh, John Mara spoke and said so that Stan's change of position was ridiculous and that if Kroenke had not agreed to indemnify the league, the owners wouldn't have voted to move. He said anyone who was in the room in Houston when the vote was taken would know that. The sources said that Jerry Jones argued that he had been dealing with legal issues too and indicated that the problems were not the fault of Stan Kroenke or the league, but were because one owner's deposition was shaky. That owner's name was not mentioned. So now I'm asking you, Seth, who <laughs> was that owner? You can tell us in code... You can use a code name like Snan Dider or something like that, but you have to. I, I want to know if you can tell us who that owner was. Let's break was. some news. Yeah. Well, not that many owners were deposed. I think that it's actually a former owner, probably Jerry Richardson, but I don't know that for a fact. Um, I, I've okay. not been able to ask Jerry who he was referring to. Some owners thought that it was someone else, um, but, you know, there, not that many owners were actually deposed. And so when you look at them, I'm guessing it was Jerry Richardson again, you know, that, so Don Van Ann and I have done a lot of stories about relocation and, you know, how the dynamics of, of all these teams relocating and then the mess that was LA between the Rams and the chargers, that one, um, yes. you know, I just wrote off, it was a kind of a new story off the league meeting to give your, your listeners a little bit of context where Van Ann and I had reported in 2016 that the morning of the vote for LA, remember it was Cronky alone and the Rams and the chargers trying to have this, you know, they were derbying for LA with this project in Carson, California, a stadium that was on a landfill. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> probably just destined to not work out. But um, the league, the day of the vote, of the relocation vote, gave all the parties this agreement to sign, this indemnification agreement, and made them sign it as a condition to have their proposal considered for relocation. And so everybody signed it. And of course, Kroenke has been and the league has been the target of this lawsuit against the city of St. Louis, essentially a fraud lawsuit um, that's lasted for four and a half years. And it's not gone away. And it, it, it's scheduled to go to trial on January 10th. And which is, of course, is a month before the Super Bowl in Stan Kroenke's $6 billion stadium in LA, which is going to, you know, so it's like, it is the potential to be enormously embarrassing for the league. Kroenke is kind of saying, look, I did what the league told me to do. I'm not at fault for all this. The league is kind of trying to navigate it as best they can. And I think that because these legal fees have gotten so high and because settlement talks, while nobody's exactly sure what St. Louis wants, you know, it could reach a billion or more dollars. Like just think about like maybe the value of the Rams franchise when they left plus damages, you know, that's a lot of money. And I think that he's saying like, I'm not responsible for all this entire thing. And this indemnification agreement I signed is not unlimited. I think other owners were like, as we all know with owners, they hate paying for things that they don't think they should have to pay for. And yes. I think they're like, are you kidding me? We all got our $17.5 million just for relocation fee dues in allowing you to leave. We're not paying anything. But I think that Kroenke is trying to argue that this thing is not unlimited and he might have a pretty good argument that it doesn't include, you know, what it might take to settle this. So anyway, that's the context of it. 
I like the idea of billionaires being like, can you believe this greedy billionaire guy? He's being so greedy. It's terrible. Well, Don, I mean, yeah, that's, that's NFL owners, though, man. There's a guy like trying to sneak a free refill at Chick-fil-A and getting uh, like <laughs> outraged when someone busts him for it. That's it's, Jerry Jones. It's mentality. one of the things that Don Van Adden and I have, you know, I've really enjoyed, you know, working with him on is, you know, we, we do try to take people into these owners only meanings and these worlds and try to like, you know, kind of explain to who they who they are a little bit like we'll always have that. We, we did this story in um, 2009, 2017 about Roger Goodell and Jerry Jones. Remember, they were at war with each other and Jerry was so mad at Roger that he was trying to sue the league to stop him from getting a contract extension. And that's right. And we had this anecdote in, in, in the story where Jerry Jones is on the phone with Jeff Pash, the general counsel of the league and Roger, where they're telling him that Zeke Elliott is going to be suspended for, you know, what they saw is, you know, enough evidence of, of a sexual assault. And Jerry gets so mad. And he says, you know, you think Bob Kraft came after you, you know, you think he goes, I'm going to come after you with everything I've got. You think Bob Kraft came after you hard. He was referring to Deflategate. He goes, Bob Kraft is a pussy compared to what I'm going to do. Um, you know, again, I'm not a pussy. <laughs> again, it's like you know those those conversations, those moments are just things that like I've really enjoyed doing with Don, and you know, giving readers a chance to kind of like have this window into you know what these these boardrooms are like. Yeah, I think it's important work, which is like, obviously, you got to couch that with the fact that like, it's literally about NFL owners, like it's not the sort of thing that that qualifies as life and death. But I think, especially, you know, you see how badly like our actual politics as politics tends to work. It's a nice reminder that even in spaces where there is not anything like a functioning democracy, like an NFL owners meeting, there's still a whole lot of politics. Like it's the same shit that you see everywhere else, the same bizarre dynamics of like, people who are too old and too rich to like remember how you're supposed to act. Like I find every one of those things I find illuminating, delightful. And then you get a little nausea at the end as a little, just a treat. Uh, speaking of people who don't necessarily know how to act, I have to ask you about Adam Schefter. Uh, Seth. Adam who? So Adam Schefter. Oh, okay. I thought so, you said Adam Schiff. So now, no, 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 not Adam Schiff. Shifty Adam. We He's, don't like him. So anyway, to, uh, to me and to the entire Defector staff, there's a pretty, there's a pretty demonstrable line between, the macro journalism that you and Don and many other people at ESPN do. And essentially, the, uh, you know, the access journalism that Schefter and Woj and, and other people provide. But Schefter has been noticeable this fall because, first of all, he was implicated in the WFT uh, email scandal because he was trading emails with Bruce Allen and calling him Mr. Editor and, and allowing him essentially full cut over something that he was publishing. And then last week, he... Uh, he broke the news of Dalvin Cook's uh, domestic violence case, but only by, uh, for I think at least an hour, only by presenting Dalvin Cook's lawyer's account of that story first. Um, so I want to ask if, whenever he does something like that, does, does it, do you have a reaction? And is there a reaction inside ESPN when that sort of thing happens? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, look, Adam, I've known Adam for 20 years. I have a lot of respect for what he does. You know, he explained himself with both of those things. And, you know, I don't have any insight or anything to add beyond, you know, what he said. You sure? Yeah. All right. I'm sure. All right. Well, I had to do the journalist thing and I had to give you a come on. But now, we're, but now I have done that. And now we're going to take a break and we'll come back with fun bag questions. All right. Okay.
And we're back. Let's remember a guy before we get into the fun bag. We have Seth Wickersham, the author of It's Better to Be Feared with us. You want to remember a guy, Seth? What's that? You, would you like to remember, every week we remember a guy, a, an, an athlete who was not necessarily like a Hall of Famer or anything, but a guy you're like, oh, I remember watching that guy play. Okay, yeah. All right, so here's the guy. You ready to remember Myron Guyton? Do you remember that guy, Seth? I mean, I do and I don't. Sorry. That's <laughs> perfect. Perfect. That's exactly what we wanted. The good news is that I'm here to remember Myron Guyton. <laughs> Step up for a true Giants legend. They, many call him the thinking man's Everson Walls. Ma- uh, Myron Guyton, to me, was one of those guys who, when I think of his name, I only think of it, I only think of Pat Summerall saying it. They're like, like, There's a lot of those guys. There's a lot of those right? guys. Yeah. Well, that's that whole era of dudes, too. If you didn't watch Giants games growing up as a kid, like you would know them from one of the video games that existed at the time. And he was like a guy that made a lot of tackles in like Madden 3 <laughs> or whatever. So like you would have really fond associations just for that reason, I think. Yeah, like guys like like Sam Mills and stuff like that. Like there were like there were Summerall and Madden guys that I remember just deeply. Let's open up the fun bag. And this is from Kurt Seth. You ready to answer some questions? Is this a virtual bag or a literal bag? Uh no, it, I, it's I was, a I was wondering one. what a, I what, a, what does a fun bag look like? It would be nice if I had like a burlap sack that said fun bag, totally. like in block letters. So across I it. have wondered what the actual fun bag would look like in, in real life. And all I can tell you is that it would be weirdly wet. <laughs> oh, <God>. uh, <laughs> it would make a sound whenever he pulled an email. Out of it. it's, there's a lot of bad stuff in here. I keep waiting for everyone to demand that I change the name of the fun bag because it's a tit, <laughs> but I haven't done that yet. It's been, it's like a generation spanning thing. Yes. It's a, it's a, it's a Trump word. Trump word. Trump has definitely used that word. This is from Kurt. He writes in, as I watch, as I was watching the refs try to ruin more games this weekend, I try to think of ways to make the officials left less impactful during the game. The most off the wall idea I came up with is the penalty veto. Each team gets one veto per game that completely erases a penalty called against them. Seth, what do you think of that idea from Kirk? Is that Kirk? Is that Kirk Cousins coming out of the fun bag and talking about no, that? No, no, <laughs> no. Kurt would ask for uh, more intentional grounding penalties to be called on him. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because that's kind of you know Belichick suggested that a couple years ago that basically like you know because coaches obviously can challenge certain plays, but there's a limited amount of plays that they can challenge, and he suggested like why not just be able to challenge anything you still have the same amount of challenges but just open it up if you think it's holding or a pass interference whatever it is why not give the coach the ability to challenge it and i actually think it's a pretty good idea that's essentially what kirk is is saying well what kurt said actually though what he's proposing is that there's no review of it that you get called holding you did hold but you get one chance per game to get a mulligan on it oh basically is what he's saying Fair enough. I, I'd buy that. So basically, it's like it's the thing that you said, but it's a dumber. But, then, wouldn't, wouldn't, <laughs> but wouldn't they just not hold until like the most critical play of the game, and then just say, "Well, that's my mulligan." Forget if it was fourth and goal with three seconds left and it won the game. Hey, they would all just hold everybody. Yeah, they were very cool. It's on. Well. Well, no, they couldn't do that because, first of all, I was an offensive lineman, and you hold whether you like it or not. <laughs> and then the other thing is that if you had everybody hold on the final play, they would throw 18 flags, and they'd only let you veto the one. It'd be all. It's like how offsetting penalties offset, and I hate offsetting penalties because like one will be five yards and one will be 15. 
And I'm like, no, those are equal now. We've decided those are equal, and you have to redo the play. I do like the idea of a totally unscientific veto making its way into football one way or the other. This one seems like maybe it needs a little more fine-tuning. But anything that like puts more important elements of the game in the hands of Dan Campbell like is, for me, a good Yeah, thing. and I, I, I like the idea that no replay is involved, where it's just like, no, we're undoing that play. Yeah, that's part, like there's no there's no like hemming and hawing over Speaking it. Speaking of Dan know. Campbell, like, you know, it seems like that it has nothing to do with Dan himself. Dan is who he is. Nice guy, but we love him. This is a this is a pro Dan but Campbell. It seems podcast. like that he's like this kind of phenomenon, considering he's really kind of a bad coach and he's an talk awful about, coach. And talk about eating yeah. people. Like how many people, <laughs> how many coaches in history kind of get as much of the benefit of the doubt and half as many people kind of rooting for this guy and trying to rationalize and explain him you know he's just he's not a good coach he talks about eating people yes he drinks a lot of coffee he might be a good human being i've you know that's again it's not a it's not a commentary on him it's a commentary on us and the fact that people really seem to be rooting for this guy for some reason well i think it's because he's such good tv he's such a big personality like i've had believe me seen many bad coaches but like the bad coaches that the Giants had when I was a kid were all just guys that looked like gym teachers with headaches. <laughs> you know, like Ray Hanley just looked like a guy that got in like a minor traffic accident all the time. Like, that's not a fun vibe. Whereas like Dan Campbell coming in just absolutely vibrating off that espresso and being like, today, you know what? Honestly, we were a lot worse than the Bears today. Okay, everybody. Like, but that's, that's fine. It's at least like it pops. He's riding, he's riding uh, Ted Lasso's coattails. I mean, that's all there is. It's just people like, wow, he's Ted Lasso, but real. And also he loses all the time. Isn't that nice? And I think that's why. <laughs> Dave writes It's like in, if you had Rob Liefeld draw a Ted Lasso comic. I think that's a good idea. Dave writes in, uh, Seth, say you're a Bills fan and you have the power to go back to 1990 and transplant one player from the modern NFL to your team for the four-year stretch of Super Bowl losses. Who do you choose, and how many rings result from this addition? I feel like Aaron Donald is the easy choice because he's already it's already hard enough for bigger, faster, stronger, modern NFL lines, O-lines to deal with him. He's probably your best chance at a two-to-three ring run. Justin Tucker would be tempting, though. That's yeah. what Dave says. Oh, Justin Tucker. Because, I mean, he makes the kick, and then... They win three Super Bowls and they're the greatest dynasty ever. And nobody ever cares about Jimmy Johnson and Troy Aikman and Emmett Smith and or the Washington football team or, you know, and it's like Belichick never gets the job coaching the Browns because they ended up losing the Super Bowl because his defense <laughs> couldn't stop the Bills at the end. You know, that's a great alternative history. I always feel like, though, I, I agree with that. And I think, obviously, if you can send back like a kicker who's as good as contemporary kickers are, like Justin Tucker being one of several guys that are probably a good noticeable 50% better than anybody that was kicking in the NFL at that time. Like there were still guys kicking barefoot yeah. when the bills were in the, well, Super and Bowl. Scott Norwood, he did, he could, and Scott, I mean, yes, he, I mean, maybe that was like, maybe they should have like thought about that drafting a kicker into Buffalo, you know, the, the fact that he was <laughs> barefoot. I'll figure but, it out. Don't worry. How hard could it be you, to walk around barefoot yeah. in Buffalo in January? Did you guys watch the bills 30 for 30, the four falls of Buffalo? Did not. Oh, I mean, I watched it. It's like, I love that one, but it's like just watching Norwood in it. It's just so heartbreaking. He almost, he almost like speaks of that era with a level of like, and I don't, I'm not saying this like flippantly with like a level of, of like PTSD. I mean, it's, you know, what that one kick did to him and how it changed his life. It was, it was so hard to watch. Anyway, it just made me think of it. I do think, I do think that kick broke that Bills team. Like I I I'm with you. I don't think that they would 
they at least wouldn't have lost those next three Super Bowls as badly as if they had made that kick, if they had lost them at all. But I just want to add Travis Kelsey to the uh, to the mix. Uh, See, that's what I was going to say is like, or like Derrick Henry or like, because it just was such a different era, like as great as Thurman Thomas was. And he was like, really, really it's good. It's a Hall of Famer. Like, but like Derrick Henry is like basically physically bigger than any defensive lineman that was playing at that time, except for like Cortez Kennedy or something. <laughs> right. Like it would have been unfair. So, like it would have been like his. So you're saying that like Pete Metzlars, he was the weak link. If they just had Travis Kelsey in there, then <laughs> that's like, right. Yeah, that's right. Or Jalen Ramsey, it. just put like a really nasty ass cornerback. Got it. I'm so happy that we got to. I mean, that was like a little bonus guy remembering Pete Metzlars. His name has now been said twice in one I episode. I feel like yeah, he can be a future. You know, know that guy. Uh, let's do one more. This is from Chaz. This is not football related. Chaz writes in, whoever names shapes should have been put in charge of naming lots of other things. Here is my list of names that whip ass. These are from Chaz. Sphere, cylinder, hypercube, rhombus, trapezoid, prism, pentagon, octagon, nonagon, triketra, squircle, Squirkle? octogramic ant prism. I didn't know that was a thing. Dodecahedron. And isosohedron, isosohedron is fucking metal, Chaz writes. Yes, I am high. Seth, uh, <laughs> what is your favorite shape name? What is the coolest shape name in your mind? I learned so many of those. And honestly, like, you know, I was like, you know, that maybe this is more revealing about me than anybody else. But it just made me wish that, like, Peyton Manning, rather than Omaha, had said Scorsel. And yeah. introduced, that to the, introduced that to the lexicon, you know? Just how great would that have been? I, what is a scorsel? That's a that's a square. That's also a circle. Is that uh, correct? Well, let's uh, let me do a Google image search. It's we we made it. We made it to the part of the podcast where I look up something. Yes, this is time. it. Everybody drink. It, it, you know what? <laughs> yes, it is a it is a square with rounded corners. It is it is the app icon. That's that's oh. the shape. Well, when you put it like that, it's kind of disappointing. As a word, though, I have to agree. It is a just a damn delight. Yeah, to behold and to say out loud. I I like I do like. I do like rhombus. I remember when I was in school, like doing like, I remember thinking like figuring out the measure, measurements of like cylinders and shit was cool as balls. Like I liked all that geometry shit. I think maybe the last thing I truly enjoyed as a student was just learning shapes. Like that's the, <laughs> the essence of being in elementary school where they're like, I'm going to draw something for you and I'm going to tell you what it is. It's real. Write this down. It all goes, and I'd be like, Go it ahead, all goes downhill from there. Yeah. I mean, at some point you have to like, figure out how to do math related to a trapezoid and that's fine i suppose you know it's got angles it can be filled you know like i get all that but i liked it better when they were like just drawing some crazy thing i hadn't seen before and telling me what the name was and i was like cool i'll remember that until i die uh like every other thing that you want to tell me about it will probably disappear within minutes of you telling it to me but i will always remember a trapezoid. i like dodecahedron because it sounds like the name of a monster any shape name that sounds like something that will also breathe fire this must be defeated in a mythical quest. yes that's a that's how you know a name is something weird. that just looks at you and you turn into a fucking cinder that'd be fucking great i love it do you dare confront the scorsel <laughs> <laughs> I, I need a t-shirt that says that <laughs> well thank you so much for coming on seth we're gonna we're going to end the podcast. Brandon Nixon, and Corinne Walls are our producers. Daisy Rosario is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. And thanks to us, you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code 
distract. Don't forget oh, to I rate or you and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. And go subscribe to Defector.com too while you're at it. And also, let's plug Seth's book. It's called It's Better to Be Feared. It made the New York Times bestseller list. It is fully comprehensive and fantastic. You can buy it anywhere books are sold. I assume there's also an audio book as well, Seth. A very long audio book. <laughs> Did you no. read it? No way. All right. I don't know. Drew read it. It's like his. 17 hours or so. I was like, even I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and one more thing uh, before we go. We are having a live podcast, Roth and I. We're having that uh, uh, December 8th. Uh, we're having that in just a few weeks, live in New York City. And you can come. You have to buy tickets. So you have to go to the Event Spaces website. It's caveat.nyc. K- Come on, man. C-A-V-E-A-T dot N-Y-C. And look for us in the live events. It's, you'll find a distraction live. Also, if you can't go to the thing, you can watch the live stream. It'll be you great. Can. You can. If you haven't experienced my posture in person, I really recommend it. It's, it's a once-in-a-lifetime Either thing. way, you do have to buy tickets, so please do that at caveat.nyc. And again, buy Seth's book. Uh, it's better to be feared at bookstores everywhere. Seth Wickersham, thank you for coming on. Will you come on again sometime? Absolutely. Great to, great to uh, well, I guess I can see you guys, but always great to see you guys and talk to you guys. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so, so Thanks, much. Man. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.